This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Just like money in the pocket, We talked a little bit at the top of the show about how investors are reacting to the latest bank to come out with their numbers. That's Bank of America. So let's get into that. Understand because it's a little bit of a nuanced reaction, it feels Agreed, like, Carol. Yeah. Lenon Nguyen is here. She is finance reporter for Bloomberg, following these numbers very closely. And Walter Todd, our old friend, chief investment officer down at Greenwood Capital Associates. Down in Greenwood, South Carolina. That's where he's on the phone. Welcome to you both. Uh, Walter, I want to start with you. So what's your immediate reaction when you see this? And as you start to digest it through the day, uh, what do you make of uh, B of A's numbers? Yeah, I think I think the initial reaction to the numbers this morning was the focus on you know, the net interest margin compression, which you know, shouldn't be a shock, but apparently was right off the bat. Uh, I think as the day has progressed and as the call happened, people started to refocus on the other 46% of their business, which is non-interest income, um, and that did pretty well. And you think about the kind of the structure of Bank of America, that's one of the benefits of having all that other business. Uh, it's a very consumer-facing bank, and clearly from the, all the reports we've heard to date from the banks, the consumer is definitely the strongest part of the economy. And so I think a lot of those factors led people to kind of step back and, and be more, I guess, excited about the uh, the number versus the, that initial reaction this morning. Lenon, come on in on uh, what we got from Bank of America, the call, the questions, uh, and the reactions from uh, the analyst community and the investment community. Well, there was a lot of questions about net interest margin. And again, the investment community and all the analysts are asking the consumer banks what happens when rates get cut, when the Fed cuts rates. So uh, they wanted to hear a lot more visibility on that. They were asked about that a lot. Um, um, and in the end, the guidance on net interest margin um, really didn't surprise markets that much. So we were expecting it to be revised a little lower, um, but they had already kind of laid the groundwork for that. So shares didn't fall too much. And now they're up. Uh, and I think that partly is to do with just the, the absolute number, which is that Bank of America got to a fifth record quarter. So, you know, it's still on a big winning streak. And so, uh, Walter, what do you make of this in light of what we've heard from other banks uh, so far? Because now we have the benefit of really the biggest banks, I guess, absent Morgan Stanley. At this yep. point, is there a theme that you're starting to see emerge here? Uh, I, I think one of the themes is the, I've talked about the consumer, right? So, so the consumer business, consumer loans, car businesses, to the extent they have that, or, you know, credit uh, is, losses are very low in that business. So anything consumer-related, we heard this from J.P. Morgan, we heard it from Citigroup. So so that's a definite theme uh, that we're hearing so far. But, you know, it is very company-specific. And, you know, look at Wintrust Financial yesterday, which got, you know, kind of blown up on their quarter versus a Pinnacle Financial, both regional banks, but very different outcomes to their earnings, very different reactions in the stock. So, and even Bank of America today up 2% with the XLF down, um, I think it's, this market is becoming much more kind of company specific, and I think as we get into the earnings, you know, the market rallied from the beginning of June through you know last week on the back of the expectation for the Fed to cut rates. 
the Fed can't make the quarter for you. Uh, and we're seeing this with CSX, for example, uh, yeah. today. So it, it kind of drills down to the individual, you know, uh, company earnings right. uh, itself. I want to throw something out there. Our Brooks Sutherland tw- tweeted this out. Um, follows the industrials, follows a lot of things, uh, writes an opinion column uh, here uh, at Bloomberg. She said, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan sees solid consumer activity across the board. We're talking about the strength of the consumer that we keep hearing. Someone forgot to tell Jerome Powell. And so I do wonder, Lenon, when you know we hear from these banks, we see data on the consumer, we hear the Fed talk about the consumer. Like, how do we reconcile all of it? Well, the Fed is the world's central bank. It's not just the U.S. central bank. So I think yeah. Jerome Powell is concerned not just about what's happening in the U.S. economy, but more concerned broadly about the global economy and the U.S.'s role within the global economy. The fact that the U.S. is you know, escalating a trade war with China and that we have other uh, geopolitical uncertainties. Europe is rolling over in terms of its economic data as well. So he's not just looking at what is happening on Main Street America. He's looking at what's happening globally. On Main Street America, as Brian Moynihan from Bank of America says, things are going really well. And so that is helping to lift Bank of America, which is largely seen as a domestic play mm-hmm. and uh, you know, largely tied to the, the health of the American consumer. And so, Walter, play out the rest of earnings season for us. The banks, obviously, tone setters, as it were, if for no other reason than the timing. Uh, You mentioned the consumer. You mentioned the Fed. What else should we be looking for as companies uh, start to, to chat? Trade came up in an earlier conversation that we had. Where does it all fit in? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough question. (laughs) Um, No, I think, um, I think the theme that we're setting up here early is this the industrial economy versus the, the consumer economy. It started with Delta, Fastenal that reported the same day, two very different outcomes. So I think that's going to be a theme that continues. Uh, so industrials are really struggling with the trade uncertainty and, and the implications of lower shipping, and et cetera. You know, the consumer is still doing well. So I think that will continue to play out as we as we go through earnings. The other thing I would say is that expectation levels of stocks heading into numbers matters. So CSX today versus J.B. Hunt yesterday, both had kind of disappointing quarters, but J.B. Hunt was up 5%. CSX is down 9%. Right. Going into the number, J.B. Hunt was flat for the year. CSX was up 28%. So what the expectations built into stocks is a little bit of a concern with a company like a Honeywell or a Microsoft heading into their numbers in the next couple of days. Hey, Lenon, just got uh, 20 seconds for you. So the bank... Earnings overall, how should we see them? I think we should see them as a victory um, for uh, Main Street in the short term. The question is how long that's going to last. All the banks have turned in record or very strong profits this time around, but everyone's looking for when the next recession comes. All right, great summation. Lenon Nguyen, she is finance reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Walter Todd joining us on the phone from Greenwood, South Carolina. He's chief investment officer at Greenwood Capital Associates. Our next guest's firm invests in companies with products and services that do look at the world and specifically address the global economy and the global world or the world's greatest risks. Uh, Garvin J. Bush is back with us, co-founder and chief investment officer at Green Alpha Advisors. He's based in Boulder, Colorado. He is in back in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you back. Welcome back. Thanks. It's wonderful to be back. Appreciate I, it. I kidded, you know, or, you know, Jason and I were talking about in the tease up to you, you know, here we are with such a warm 
It's blazing hot outside. Uh, we're expecting the hottest day of the year come this weekend that, um, you know, climate change, front and center. And I do wonder how that plays into your investment decisions. It absolutely does. Uh, first of all, you're right. Here in New York, it is a microwave outside. It's nuts. Uh, yeah. Leave your blazers at home. Just go short sleeves today. Yeah. Uh, well, you're, what you say is exactly right. We think that in terms of investment management, it is increasingly clear that that needs to dovetail with what the big systemic risks are for the global economy, right? So if, you, if we want our clients to be able to preserve their purchasing power for the next 10 and 20 years, the best way to do that and to de-risk their portfolio is to not own the causes of the biggest systemic risks threatening overall economics such as So what climate. don't you own then? So what don't we own? Yeah. Well, the big causes of system-level risks around climate disruption and around resource degradation and and worsening inequality. So, of course, we don't own fossil fuels. We don't own things like fossil-powered utilities. We don't own uh, makers of internal combustion engines. These are all drivers of demand for things that cause climate disruption. How do you do something like an electric vehicle maker, right? We are embracing that big time, right, Mm -hmm. as an alternative to combustion engines. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you need power plants, some of them often fueled by coal and other things. So how do you how do you embrace that kind of investment, or do you? Yeah, indeed. Well, we absolutely do, because in addition to power generation, if we're going to de-risk the economy, we also need to do something about transportation, which is a huge source of, of risk creation. So uh, in that case, there's a couple of things. One, electric transportation can indeed uh, evolve to become 100% renewables-based, unlike internal combustion, which has to burn something. At least you can fill up your car with a solar panel if it's an EV. And increasingly, as the grid converts, you know, where we live in Colorado, Xcel Energy, our big utility, has committed to becoming 100% renewables-based. So as that evolution continues apace, your electric vehicle gets better and better every day. But even before that day comes, you know, an electric motor is so much more efficient than an ICE that it's already better to begin with. You know, only something like 15%. Your own uh, Emily Chasen had this in... uh, Good, good business, the, her newsletter that came out today. Yeah. Uh, an internal combustion engine converts something like 15 or 20% of its potential energy into kinetic energy mm-hmm. for the vehicle. An electric motor converts like 85%. So even if you're so burning coal, you, your electricity, it's still better to drive an right. EV. So take us inside some of the things that you're doing when it comes to assessing companies because yeah. companies it feels like are listening more candidly to their investors and at the same time maybe emboldened in- investors are being a little bit more vocal around things like buybacks around things like acquisitions being generally more active a do you agree with that and and b what are you doing and where are you finding sort of those conversations gaining the most purchase it is interesting that, you know, we, we founded Green Alpha 11 years ago now, and we were a little early. I'll be the first to admit yeah. uh, people would kind of roll their eyes at us and be like, well, what big risks around climate? And, but now they're more and more visible all yeah. the time. And even people who were, you know, say a, an advisor in a corner office at a big wirehouse somewhere who would say to us, well, that's crazy. Uh, five years ago, now the phone is ringing and they're saying, help me talk to clients about this. And so we, we do find that it's gaining traction uh, everywhere. And it's important to, when you're making your investment decision to, to come to the first part of your question, sorry, I took them in reverse order, yeah. uh, is to think about what a company actually does. And on this basis, we think that uh, mainstream indexing is, is uh, pushing the other way from getting towards a sustainable economy because the basis on which you own a stock if you're, if you're buying an index fund is because it's in the index. 
uh, we think we need to get back to the old-timey ways of judging every case on its merits and mm-hmm. owning a stock because it's contributing to mitigating a risk. Just half about 45 seconds left here, sure. Garvin. So what else do you see as a risk in the global economy and how that impacts your investment plays? So in addition to energy and emissions, of course, uh, resource uh, degradation is a, is a big thing. So we, we own solutions around water, uh, around agriculture, around topsoil degradation. All these things really can genuinely undermine the human economy and finding ways to fix those is a great way that we believe to earn long-term alpha because there's only two end games we drive it you know over the edge or we end up with an indefinitely sustainable economy and i very much believe in the latter but you got to invest to bring that about and people it seems like are starting to make money on this strategy which is ultimately going to be uh what proves it out can we ask you what your returns have been they've been very competitive uh year to date so far this year our mutual fund nextx uh is up 33 percent so it's having a strong year. All right. Yeah, more Good to than check in with you. Sounds like. I love talking about this space. Garvin, thank you so much for thank stopping you. by. Jason uh, Carroll. Garvin J. Bush. He's co-founder and chief investment officer at Green Alpha Advisors based in Boulder, Colorado, back in our Interactive Broker studio. It's the time of the season. Yes, folks, if you haven't noticed, uh, we are definitely into earnings season. Underway, the big banks already reporting. Let's get some thoughts on what to watch out for and also why our next guest thinks that the small cap space is being overlooked. Anne Maletti is back with us in studio. She is Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management, $495 billion in assets uh, under management, based in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. She got through the heat. <laughs> she got here. Welcome back. Thanks, Carol. So, first of all, tell us when you go back home, what are the kind of conversations that you guys are having within that community? Because sometimes I do feel like mm-hmm. on the coast we get a little bit, you know, f- too focused perhaps on the Fed and some other things. But I'm curious what you folks are talking about back home. Yeah, that is a great question. Um, because I live in the Midwest, it is yeah. a little bit different being in this business. Um, most people are talking about their jobs, which are outside of the financial community. And the job market in Milwaukee is very, very healthy. In Wisconsin, um, generally, unemployment is really at historically low um, at historically low levels, better than actually the rest, most of the rest of the country. And so people are pretty optimistic and have high confidence. Actually. So they're not worried about things like trade, and that's another one that we spend I, I a lot of time I do think on. the media and all of the talk and what people read and you know hearing about it every day still does have an impact, but not as much as for me, for you, for other people that follow it day to day. And so how does that inform your investment thesis? How does it help you sort of direct the team on where to look, maybe some places that other folks are overlooking? You know, I I love that question, Jason, because what we really try to do with our investment process is take the emotion out of the decision making and being a little bit outside of the noise and maybe the group think um, we're able to really do that we're trying to talk to companies not necessarily about just tariffs and trade war certainly we have to figure out where expectations are and what they believe is going to happen but we're really focused on business fundamentals and you know Back to the basics. 
And so, so, but, but when you look at, you know, if people talk about, I mean, it's unbelievable, the major equity averages, how much they've run up already. And we talk yes. about valuations, mm-hmm. hard to be a value guy or a girl in, you yes. know, this environment. So, um, when you look at fundamentals, uh, you feel confident that growth will continue earnings profit, but I mean, earnings estimates have come down, you know, in terms of earnings growth estimates. They have. And I think overall the market isn't too expensive, but there are areas of the market that do make me uncomfortable. Um, and interestingly, we have a PE of almost 20. Yeah, it is. It is. But when you look at certain areas of the market, um, that are inflating that PE, those are the areas in the market that make me more uncomfortable. And that would be, you know, areas that most investors would consider stable areas, bond-like proxy areas, utilities, consumer staples. Those areas are actually more expensive Mm. than the S&P average. Um, And they're slow growth. Utilities, regulated industries, slow growth. Consumer staples have secular pressures. But money flows have been targeted to those areas not just say, seeking safety, but seeking, desperately seeking yield because it's difficult to find in other places. But I actually think they've gone there too far, mm-hmm. and it's actually now a dangerous area to be because of valuations. Well, it's interesting you say that because it feels like people went looking for safety and then found out we weren't living in a world that ultimately was that dangerous. Right. And so where do you go uh, now when we know that at yeah. some point – it will get dangerous, yes. but those areas, as you say, are a bit oversubscribed. Yeah. One of the spaces that we are spending a lot more time is is looking down market cap. So the smaller cap stocks do look more interesting to us than the large cap space. They are trading at a discount and a historical discount. When you look back, you know, more than 13 percent and when you look back over the past 20 years on a trailing one-year basis, only four times in the last 20 years have the Russell 2000 index traded below or at a 10% discount to the S&P 500. To me, that's just too big of a discount. Historically, it has been too big of a discount when that gap has been that wide. It's closed in the, historically the last three times. I expect that it will close again this time. Yeah, I, you know, it is interesting, you know, as we look at this market environment, and I'm looking at the Russell right now, it's yeah. just up about 15% here. Um, you know, you're right, it's a big gap, at least on that basis as well. Mm-hmm. But I do wonder, like, what are we maybe missing, though, in this market mm-hmm. environment? Because it does feel like potentially mm-hmm. the equity rally could continue. Mm-hmm. I do think it could continue. There's, I think the macro fears will continue to be part of the problem. The tariff fears... You know, interest rates, what happens with those, that's going to continue to drive, be a driver. But fundamentals will matter. And so if the small cap companies can, you know, show that they can put up the earnings, beat on the top line, and historically small cap revenue growth is better than the large cap companies, then they should come back. Also, lowering of interest rates should 
right. be a trigger to help the small cap stocks as well. I want to go back to, to something Carol said at the beginning, which was in part about sort of your geography and where you live. But I also, and I think we've talked about this in the show before, your background is so interesting too, because you know you started as a school teacher and, and through a, a series of, of decisions largely based on your family, you ended up you know doing this. I feel like you probably understand quote unquote yeah. regular people outside <laughs> of the industry better. As you talk to those folks, outside of the financial industry, you mentioned this earlier, what are their big concerns about the economy right now? You know, I think their biggest concerns about the economy is where they're going to get growth um, in their savings for retirement. Retirement is a really big concern for people and the average person, and they just don't know how to get the growth. I think most people are under, most people that I talk to are underinvested in the equity market. They're afraid um, to get back in because, you know, they hear that we're in this 10 plus year bull market. Right. Um, that really hasn't been, you know, from it an hasn't eco- felt like right, that to them, it, right, right. right. Yeah. And economically, we've been in a slow growth environment, right? And so is that, has that run too far? Is it too late? And yet there's nowhere to get yield. Right. And so when they're talking to people and, and, and financial planners, they're leery about where to go. And most of them haven't started early enough. So yeah. I think retirement planning is kind of the key area really of concern. Yeah. And I know you're working on financial literacy as well. So maybe next time around, too, we'll dig into that because I think that's such an important issue right now. And nice to have you here. It's nice to see you guys again. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Have a safe trip home. Anne Maletti, she's Senior Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Asset Management based in Menominee Falls, Wisconsin, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. They have roughly $495 billion in assets under management. Anna. Well, this is a great, great song to lead into Perfect. this week's cover story of Bloomberg Business Week. It's all about Jay Powell and his rather uncomfortable, shall we say, relationship with the man who appointed him mm-hmm. to that job, President Donald Trump. The cover is one to behold, and I know one that the editor of Business Week, Joel Weber, thought a lot about as he tried to illustrate this story. The story is written by Chris Condon. He's our Fed Reserve reporter down in Washington. He joins us from our studio there, our 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Joel Weber's here with us in our interactive broker studio. Joel, I want to start with you. How did you, how did this all come together from your perspective? So a couple of weeks ago, um, we started talking about what we think is maybe the most important story in the Bloomberg universe, which is this tension between the Federal Reserve, which is probably the most important financial institution in the world, and the president. That... When, we, when Chris and I started talking about it initially, we actually realized that it's almost to a one-year mark. And actually, I think the date was July 19th that Trump tweeted his first critical tweet of mm. the Fed. And it only got louder as the years gone on. That year has unfolded. And so we went to Chris and said, what impact has all that noise had on the Fed, which we all recognize forever has really been this independent institution because if anybody else does that story before us and and gets the answer that we want, we're going to be really mad at ourselves. So that was the assignment that Chris, we gave Chris and then he went off and I think came back with an even better story. 
Well, and Chris, talk about your story. And as you, you know, reported it out, you know, how did it unfold for you and what really stood out for you? Sure, sure. Well, this happened, I think, on two levels. As Joel has said, we started thinking about how the Fed is directly impacted by all of this hectoring coming from the president. And the answer that really comes back first when you examine the Fed as an institution and Jay Powell as a leader is not that much, actually. The Fed is built very well to hold up and resist against a lot of outside pressures. And Jay Powell, when you talk to people who know him very well, uh, is a guy who has a very cool demeanor. Um, His temperament is essentially built very well to stand up to somebody like Donald Trump. And uh, I I invoked the classical Roman uh, philosophy of Stoicism, in fact, in describing him. Um, but then you get to another level um, and find that if, if you extend the continuum of, of Trump's attacks on the Fed, it has taken a turn earlier this year away from j- simply uh, public commentary to changing the types of picks he makes in nominating folks to the board of governors at the Fed. So there are seven seats on the board of governors, and there are currently two empty seats. And uh, for a while, Trump was picking when there were previous openings. He picked altogether um, normal, traditional types of people to serve there. And he, of course, as you said, picked Powell to be the chair. More recently, however, his picks have become um, quite threatening, I think, to people who work at the Fed, uh, people who feel themselves to be allies of that institution. Uh, because they feel that process has been politicized and that Trump is seeking people who will do his bidding when officials meet to decide on interest rates. And, you know, Chris, one of the things that I think that, that really kind of brings into play here is this idea of of how the Fed might be vulnerable, right? So what what's the timeline potentially look like? In, and with Shelton is sort of the person who is viewed – in the article, at least, it, she basically comes across as a potential fox to get into the hen house, right? So what kind of timeline are we potentially looking at here? That's correct. That's correct. We're talking about Judy Shelton, uh, former campaign advisor on economic matters to Trump, um, and a longtime, uh, let's say, libertarian thinker and economist. Uh, she, uh, this is not going to happen quickly because the Congress is going to go into summer recess this is going to take a few months. And Fed nominations, as, as with many other nominations, take a long time to go through this uh, confirmation process. First, the person has to go up to the Hill. Well, first, her nomination has to be formally submitted to the Senate. Then she's got to go up and schedule a whole bunch of meetings with uh, every member of the Senate Banking Committee. Um, and if they feel that she's got a good chance at getting confirmed, then they'll go ahead with scheduling a committee hearing. Um, the Democrats will get their chance in the spotlight to, to hammer away at her and question her. Um, and then there'll be a, a further uh, time period where they try to schedule floor time for a vote. It will take many months, possibly not until around the end of the year before she could see a vote on the floor of the Senate. And all sorts of things could happen between now and then. 
We are living in unusual times. We are indeed. And really highly recommend this story because, as Joel said and as Chris said, it works on many levels. Really important to understand this relationship given the importance of the Fed in the world of economics. All right. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser, Joel Weber, and Chris Condon here on Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's uh, get back to the markets, if we may. We've got those equity averages uh, either at or hovering near their worst levels of the day. We're down across the board. Let's bring back uh, Alan Lance. He's research director at LanceGlobal.com, a well-known uh, guest to our Bloomberg audience, president of Allen B. Lance and Associates. He's with us once again from Toledo, Ohio, on the phone. Alan, good to have you here. I think it's interesting that we do have... You know, we just heard a little bit of the interview that our editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, has done with the Iranian foreign minister. You know, it's just a reminder of the many big macro issues that are out there for investors to kind of wade through, whether it's still U.S.-China trade. Vince Signorella talked about it, our, our Vince Signorella earlier. I mean, these are issues that keep coming back to investors. How do you put them in perspective? Yeah, that's a good question, Carol. I, I think it's a situation where um, you, you have to really look at, at what will move the markets. And I, I think what's moving the market beyond, you know, obviously war or, or something that really, uh, you know, pivots in, in, into something serious is going to be more what we've seen the last, you know, seven months. And that's, you know, the Fed changing from. Uh, uh, as far as increasing interest rates, uh, uh, as far as uh, several times in 2019 to now um, talking about lowering interest rates and and um, you know the, the progression of the uh, tariff talks and and discussions with with China, I think those are are, are more material than uh, as, um, the situation with. Um, uh, as far as geopolitically, uh, you're, you're always going to have, you know, something uh, Mideast and, and you're always going to have something, um, you know, North Korea. Uh, but, um, you know, mm. unless there's real provocation and, and changes, I, I think investors are, are more concerned with, uh, you know, the earnings and, and uh, interest rate trends and, and what, you know, what, pensions and, and retirees can get, you know, now that interest rates are, are lower again, and what alternatives are, then, you know, what, what's going on on a geopolitical front. Now, that could all change, uh, you know, with the China talks or, or if things escalate, but right now, I think uh, it, it's more on the back burner for decision making. All right. So, so Alan, uh, with that in mind, with that, that backdrop, let's talk names. We love talking names with you. And in, in this earnings season, you know, you're starting to see a little bit of volatility that maybe you can buy into. What are you seeing in terms of maybe some underperformers that provide some buying opportunities? Yeah, we're still playing bargains, you know, as opposed to um, the summer of 2007 when when we couldn't find anything, you know, overseas or domestically or even real estate and alternative investments we thought were overvalued. Uh, now, yeah, I, I think the market's starting to get overvalued in certain areas, but 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 you're finding even we're um, rotating, you know, uh, as, as far as uh, within a, a sector. To give you an example, uh, you know, two years ago we talked about Verizon, Verizon, and the low 40s with an incredible yield and, and just a solid company and 
moved to 60s, and, and we bought AT&T uh, earlier this year when it was 28, 29, and, and now it's 33. So, again, we wouldn't chase. So actually, we've taken profits in, 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 in Verizon, uh, as at least partial profits. And now a company like Nokia, which has 5G on the horizon, would would benefit if things escalated, as, as Carol and I were just talking about as far as like uh, with, with highway and and, and uh, as, as far as uh, China and, and, and it's a situation where uh, the stocks near new lows so so instead of you know chasing um, you know companies that are trading at the high end or, or, or historically high valuations I, I think we're still seeing opportunities there's less of them out there, but we're still seeing opportunities, and, and, and that's a nice situation because you don't have to do an all or none with the market. Right. You can reduce risk, take some profits and some of the outperformers, and, and buy some quality underperformers. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, Alan, nice to check in with you once again. Alan Lance, he's Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Allen B. Lance & Associates, on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.